The Bible reading this morning is from 1 John 2, verses 3 to 11. So 1 John 2, verses 3 to 11. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to, be, claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Morning, everyone. Well, uh, morning to those who are at home and just for my grandson who is in the nursery. Hey. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Rhonda's not with me this morning. She is with some ex, uh, well, not extremes, what are they called? Col Ex-colleagues um, from Westside Christian College. There's a group of them who go away every year together and she's on that weekend and having a lovely time on the Gold Coast. <coughs> God is good. <laughs> they have had a good time. Uh, they just had to adjust their plans. And... So this has been a very full week, and let me apologise for the shirt that I'm wearing, apparently. It looks good. Oh. Somebody said it looks like mustard. Somebody said it reminds them of hot dogs. <laughs> Somebody else said it's more like chicken wings covered in some glaze or something. So I apologise if you can't... If you get hungry, it's... Um, We'll see how we go. We are continuing our series in the epistle, the letter of 1 John, and typical of John's writing, it's always deep and has multiple layers to it. And so we've bitten off a big chunk this morning, and it's really like two messages pushed into one. And so I'm going to maybe spend a lot of time in the beginning of it and then sort of race towards the end and there are questions available for each of the groups and I encourage you certainly to grab those questions, have a look at them and to reflect upon what God is saying to us through this portion of his word. Would you bear with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've been looking forward to this time when we can gather together and undoubtedly, Lord, throughout this coming week, we'll look back upon it and remember our service, our conversations and remember what you say to us. So, Lord, speak to us, shape us, help us to hear, and not just to hear, but to appropriate into our lives 
these truths. We ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. And everybody said? Attitudes, actions and affections is what I've entitled these three things. John gives us, all the way through 1 John, he is writing, he tells us, 1 John 5.13, that I've written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. He's very concerned that we have an assurance. The Gnostics had permeated the ancient church and this is getting towards the end of the first century and there was a level of confusion. So what's the truth? What is a Christian? They're saying one thing and you're saying another, so what is it? So he writes this letter. And one commentator, in fact, thought that John was actually present in the church that he's writing to, but he's writing it down because if you say it, people can forget it, but he wrote it down, and which is why he continually says, I am writing to you, I have written to you, I am writing this. He says it like a dozen times or more in the, the, uh, in the, the letter so that people can take it away and read it because you can pause, you can stop, you can think about what he is saying and like I said, there is multiple layers which is typical of the Word of God. Here we go. Are you a Christian? Prove it. What would you do? What evidence is required to establish that in fact you are a Christian? If you got arrested by the police on the charge of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That can be a disturbing question, can't it? Um, so what is a Christian? Like I said, the Gnostics had permeated, now people were asking John, what is the truth? How do we know? They're talking about mystical experiences and rites and rituals and secret knowledge and you're not talking about that, you're talking about other things and so John writes this very clearly to say it. How would you answer the question, what is a Christian? If you ask 10 different people, you probably get 12 different answers. I thought about it. If I was to ask people, hypothetically, some people would say I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian country. Some people think that. I'm a Christian because I went to church and Sunday school when I was a young person. I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a that, I'm, I'm a Christian. Some people would say, I go to church, I still go to church, um, I serve in the church and my name is on the roll. Does that make you a Christian? Does that make you a Christian? Oh, you are here, good. Number four, I am a good person, I do good works and I have nothing against God, therefore... I'm a Christian. No. Um, I wear a cross around my neck and I have a fish on my car. Therefore, I am one. I go to church every Christmas and every Easter. Um, I believe in God. Not enough, so does the evil one. I got married in a church and I'll probably be buried from one, therefore I must be Christian. How about this one? Number nine, I profess to believe what Jesus taught. I say I'm a Christian. I believe what Jesus taught. Does that make me a Christian? It's close, isn't it? But it's not there. Why not? That's what John writes about in this passage. Christianity has to do with a relationship with Jesus Christ where we believe, where we receive and where we obey. We believe he's the son of God and that he died and that he rose again. We believe. 
We receive him as our saviour and forgiver of our sins, like Ruth shared with us, and we obey him as Lord. Miss any one of those elements? You're not in. You're not there yet. Does that mean to say that I can believe who Jesus is, Son of God, can I believe that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and I've prayed the prayer to receive him as my saviour, that I'm not in? Let's do a quick survey. Put up your hand if you think that person is a Christian. I believe Jesus, the Son of God, I believe he died and rose again and I have received him into my heart to be a saviour. Hand up if he's a Christian. Wrong. Andrew, you're shaking your head. Because if you believe in your heart that Jesus died and he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. Not everybody, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? But only those who do the will of God. It's not enough to believe. It's not enough to receive. You have to obey. If you're not obeying, you're not in. I understand this is controversial, but I'm pretty confident I'm on solid biblical ground and I'm quite happy to, ignore, uh, to talk to all of you. Here is a summary of what John says in this passage in case I go to sleep during the rest of this talk. Verse 3. You're a Christian. You say you know God, but you actually do. You know God and you obey him. Verse 6. You're a Christian if you remain in him and you walk with him. You imitate him. And verse 9. You're a Christian if you're living in the light and you love one another. Obey God, live a consistent life or consistent with that profession and love one another. All three elements are necessary, John says in this passage. How can we know God? Well, in the ancient world, some people, and even today, some people say, we know God through our thinking, through our mind. That's what Plato taught, and that's certainly what the philosophers and philosophers today can reason. There are other Greeks and other people today say, no, 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 we know God through our feelings, through our experiences, through our frenzies and through our tingles. That's when we know we've experience God. The Jewish person would say, no, you only know God through the Torah, the law, which is close. You'll know about him, but we won't necessarily know him. The Gnostics used to say, you know God through rites and rituals and secret knowledge and so on. The apostles taught, you know God through Jesus. I am the way, the truth and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's now the second or third generation of Christians, or maybe the fourth generation of Christians, where John is writing and ministering. The Gnostics, as I said, have permeated the church and there's all sorts of confusion going on. And the question are asking, the people are asking John the questions, what is a Christian and how can we know that we are a Christian, that we're true, that we've got it right? Woo. Huh. Jesus. Here's the first one, verses 3 to 5a. My attitude to God's word and my obedience, therefore, to him is what will reveal it to him. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That little verse tells us three simple things. Number one, in the middle of it, 
God can be known. We know that we have come to know him. God can be known. And he can be known because he's revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus. Number two, we can know that we know him. That's assurance. We can know that we know him. We can be settled in that confidently. How? Because we keep his commandments. And the word keep is an ongoing. It's not that I occasionally keep it. It's rather that I have the attitude where I am going to be obedient to God. It does not mean that I'm going to be perfectly obedient because we still have sin ruling in us. And the, plur- the word here, commands, John will vary between command, singular, and commands, or commandments, plural. When he talks about commands, plural, generally he's talking about all of the commands that Jesus gave. Commands of the scripture, plus all of the teaching that Jesus gave. When he uses the singular, we keep his command, it tends to, in its context, be referring to the new commandment that Jesus gave, that we sing about, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. John, in the singular, tends to be referring to that command. So in this verse, he is saying, we can know God, and we can know that we know God, because we have an attitude of obedience to all that he said. Which comes back to what Pastor Charlie said before, about baptism. That's a command. Have you been baptised? as a believer, a follower of Jesus. That's a command. And if you haven't been, then there's an area for you to talk to God about. Uh, following Jesus, and the word, I think I told you, the word keep his commands is also an ongoing sense. We guard it, we watch over it, it's very precious to us. And it's the, it's the inward attitude I don't know where I got the illustration from, but probably from when I was a school teacher, that you can be outwardly obedient, but inwardly disobedient, can't you? You'd ask the class full of children to let stand, and they would stand. There'd be always one disobedient, rebellious child who didn't want to stand, so they didn't stand. And so you would have to point out to them, I'm going to count to three, and if you don't stand after three, then you're in trouble, you're on detention. One. Then they stand. And their attitude is, I'm standing on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside. There's no heart in it. Outwardly obedient, but no heart. When John talks about obedience, he's talking about this, the heart. And occasionally I might stumble, occasionally I might be slow to obey, occasionally I will be disobedient, but the attitude of my heart is I'm going to deal with that. So you're not talking about, John's not talking about perfect, flawless obedience, He's talking about which way are your feet pointed. You know, occasionally we turn aside, but my feet are still pointed in the direction of I want to follow, please, and obey Jesus. That marks my life. It's my intention to please him. Christianity is not rules. Do this, don't do that. Christianity is about a relationship. A relationship with somebody who is very lovable. And if you know him, you'll want to please him. So question, are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Do you want to do what God wants you to do? So it's possible for you to know him and so on. Whoever says, now John is picking up on the Gnostics, whoever says, I know him, but does not do. Again, it's in the continual sense. Who does not do continually what he commands. Might occasionally do it. But the orientation of my life is not one where I am obedient to him. Well, then, John, 
who's getting elderly and who is not politically sensitive or correct in this occasion, he just says, oh, you're a liar. <clears throat> the truth is not in you. I don't care what you say. You can profess all you like and you can talk about religious experiences and rituals and rites and secret knowledge and it's just not true. You're a liar. You've deceived yourself and you're deceiving others. But if anyone does obey his word, then notice this, the love for God is truly complete in him. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Wonderfully complete in him, our love. And again, it's not saying it's perfect, just simply saying the circle is closed, the circle is, the chain is connected. God loves us, God saves us, God places his spirit and his love in us and gives us the attitude and the desire to want to be obedient to him and to please him, Philippians 2.13, that God is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then we are responsive to that and we obey him, we do exactly what he wants and that completes our love for him. We demonstrate that we love him. He loves us and we love him. That's what John is talking about. That we are in this relationship. So, point one. The attitude to God's word is crucial. In fact, let me take just a couple more minutes. If you look at these scriptures and just read them through and read them carefully, then you will notice that obedience is one of the key themes. It begins in the garden. The very first thing God gives to Adam is a command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that he did because of the woman, her fault. That's not true, is it? It's not the woman's fault. Whose fault was it? Hers? Not Satan's. The man's fault. He was supposed to lead. And in fact, God comes to him. This is a strange verse. Take this out of context. Write it on Christmas cards. No, birthday cards. <laughs> God says to Adam, because you have listened to your wife. It's in the Bible. God is saying, don't listen. See what happens when you take something out of context? You can make it say anything, can't you? And you should come to this church and you should sit and you should listen carefully because not everything Pastor Charlie says is right. <laughs> or me. We are not infallible. So you should always be discerning. At the funeral yesterday, I made a mistake. And I had a brother come up to me and said, you made a mistake. I'm not telling you what it was. But I thought that was excellent. That's what you need. It wasn't, con it wasn't a big mistake. It's a little mistake. I gave the wrong name for one of the people in the Bible. And he corrected me. I think that's terrific. I hate him, but I think that was terrific. <laughs> Our attitude to God's word reveals whether we are in a relationship with him or not. That's why an elder said to me years ago, you can always bounce a Christian. Sorry? You can always bounce a true Christian. You can correct them, you can rebuke them. They may go through a bit of, I don't like you, I don't receive that, I don't accept it, but eventually the truth will win out because a true Christian is committed to obeying God. A true Christian wants to obey God. If you don't want to obey God, there's a clue, red flag, something's not right. 
Our attitude to God's word reveals what's going on for us. Back to the Garden of Eden. God gives this command to Adam and it says, don't. In chapter 3, after they've seen, God says to him, have you done what I commanded you not to do? Obedience is what God was looking for. It's the one thing that he requires. You go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, then it talks about, so Genesis 3, they're removed from the garden, access to the tree of life is now closed. Revelation 22, access to the tree of life is now open. How did that change come about? Romans chapter 5. Through the obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Disobedience got us out of the garden, Obedience of Jesus opens it and gets us into the garden. God is looking for obedience in our life. It's all the way through the scriptures. What does God require of us? Obedience. Simple, complete, daily and joyful. That's enough on that. Second one. My actions in my daily life. John goes on to say, well, if you're obedient, then this is going to flow on. It's going to overflow in your life. Verse 5, the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6 says, this is how we know that we are in him. Repeats that phrase. Whoever claims to live, this is the NIV, in him, must live as he did. The older versions or other versions will say, whoever claims to remain in him or to abide in him, I like the word abide, whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. You and your sin must part company if you and Jesus are going to keep company. You and your attitude of wanting to do it your way must be surrendered to him if you and he want to walk together. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Your prophet Amos says to us. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims, and that claim is an ongoing claim, whoever claims repeatedly, whoever makes this a consistent claim on their life that they abide in Jesus, that they belong to Jesus, that they walk with Jesus, must then live their life in such a way that it reflects him. Obedience doesn't produce a relationship with Jesus, but it demonstrates the relationship we have with Jesus. So my attitude to God's word is crucial and important because it overflows into the conduct of my life, my actions in my daily life. There is a big difference between believers and unbelievers. What is it? There's a big difference between believers and unbelievers. Believers have an attitude where they want to please God. Unbelievers don't. Unbelievers still want to please themselves. The inworking of God in us always precedes the outworking. And where there is in-working, an attitude of I want to please him, I want to obey him, where that's the inward attitude that will have an outworking in your life of the way that you live. And again, let me emphasize, it's not perfect, it's not flawless, but it is real. Our orthodoxy must be manifest in our orthopraxy. And it's not just going through the motions, it's really doing it. Remember when I was a kid in high school, I used to play football and I used to play cricket in the summer. And uh, I played, we had, I don't know, half a dozen teams or something like that in town and I played for one particular team and this year 
Halfway through the summer, beginning of this year, we had a new teacher turn up in town. He was the new deputy principal of our high school and he joined our cricket team. And he couldn't play cricket for peanuts, <coughs> but he thought he could. The first game he turned up to, he had creams on, cricket creams, cricket shirt, nice white shirt, a beautiful new bat, beautiful new batting gloves, cricket shoes. He was dressed like a cricketer, but he couldn't play. Couldn't bowl, couldn't bat, couldn't field. That was the team I was in. <laughs> Why am I telling you that? Because sometimes we as professing believers can go through all of the outward motions of it, but it's not real. If I were to say to you, and I'm not, so this is safe, I'm a tennis player. I have a book on tennis. I've read it. I've underlined it. I've highlighted bits and I've studied it. I watch the Australian Open every January. I subscribe to tennis magazines and for a year I research what's the best racket, what are the best shoes, what's the best sweatbands, what's the best shirts, what are the best tennis balls. I've got the gear, everything. Am I a tennis player? I know a lot about it. But until you actually go out in the court and hit the ball over the net, then you're a tennis player. It's doing it. You understand the parallel. The walk of the Christian must copy, must model the walk of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus, in his ordinary walk, his ordinary daily life, not his special, you know, the miracles and the walking on water stuff, not that stuff. God can do that, but John is talking about just in the ordinariness of how he would approach the weak and the wounded and he would care for them and he would minister to them, so too for us, to be accepting. So if you look at your life, are these attitudes present? And do they need to take a lift? Ten times, in fact, John, through this letter, is going to tell us that God is with us, that God is in us, and that we are in him. There is this relationship. If we claim to be like him, continually, then we must walk as he walked. Intimacy with Jesus Christ produces a daily walk that mirrors the pattern of Jesus' life, continually, habitually, ongoingly. Gee, what's the matter with this thing this morning? Number three, my affections towards believers. So we've spoken about our attitudes towards God's word, my actions, my behaviours in my daily life, and now John talks about my affections my inward attitude and feelings towards and my actions towards fellow believers. And he says in these two verses, well, verses 7 to 8 are an aside. He wants to get to that third point and what he's really saying is, dear friends, I'm not writing to you a, a new command, um, but I'm writing to you one that's old. And what he means is, Way back in the beginning, 60 years ago, the Lord Jesus gave us this command. And when we presented the gospel to you, that was part of the gospel that we presented. So it's an old command, it's not a new one. The Gnostics were saying, this wasn't part of the original deal, this wasn't part of the gospel. We don't have to love one another. What we have to do is believe and receive Jesus, that's it. And John is saying, no, 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 this is an old command. This was there right from the beginning. But it's not just an old command because he would then go on in verse 8 and say, yet I am writing to you a new command. That's what Jesus called it, a new command. It's been here from the beginning. 
And it's new in the sense of it's not just for Israel now, it's for all Gentiles, all people, all people who follow me are to have an attitude of love towards other Christians. Um, and note this, he says, I'm writing to you a new command, it's truth is seen in him, Jesus, and in you. The truth of it is seen in you. They're actually doing it because the darkness is passing and the true light is shining, which is a wonderful indication that God's gospel is going around the world. The darkness is retreating. It hasn't gone, but it is retreating because the light, as we follow Jesus, we get like a candle. We light a candle and the darkness flees from it. That happens all around the world. We have an Apple TV at home and so or smart TV and we got Apple and one of the things it does, I think it's a screensaver shot, it goes to this, like a satellite going around the globe at night and you can see all the lights of the cities in different nations. Have you seen that? Well, that's like, that's a picture, if you like, of what the gospel is doing. In the midst of this dark world, which is ruled by Satan, which is deceived and blinded by him, God is turning on little lights here and there. And that's what I've said before, that God has placed you in your context, in your relationships, to be a light, to be an influence where the darkness can retreat, that other people can come to know and serve him. And John says it's in Jesus and we see it in you. This is a new command. The darkness is passing away. It's going. There's a YouTube clip, I only saw it last night, that says that they've started building the temple Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, May the 6th. Not in the location, we all thought, apparently. You check it out. But for many Bible prophecy people, building of the third temple, this temple, is an indication of we're getting near the end. Jesus is coming, so we need to be ready. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. I'm in the light, I follow Jesus, just can't stand Christians. Oh, well, you're not telling the truth, you're still in the dark. Anyone who loves their brother and sister in Christ lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Anyone who hates brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. For there are only two kingdoms in this world and there is no grey, it's black and it's white. There's a kingdom of God and there's a kingdom of Satan. There's no fence in the middle that you can sit on. You're either in the kingdom of God, the light, or you're in the kingdom of darkness. You can be a good person, a nice person, a religious person, but if you're not in the kingdom of light, you're in the kingdom of darkness. And there's only one way to get from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and that's through Jesus. And those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus, walk in the light. And when they walk in the light, not perfectly, not flawlessly, but the orientation of their life is to be one that's obeying and pleasing Him. It's going to be reflecting Him in their daily choices and conduct. And it's certainly revealed in their attitudes and actions towards brothers and sisters. The early church... Um, was doing this remarkably. And the Roman government sent spies amongst the Christians. One such spy gave this report. What are Christians like? His report said, these Christians are a strange group of people. They gather together in one building, a house, 
They worship someone who is not even there and whom they expect to return at any moment. But my, how they love him and how they love one another. I wonder if we had a spy come amongst us, what their report would say. I hope it would say something like that. These Christians, these Sunnybank District people, they're a strange group of people. They gather together in a building and they worship someone who's not even there but whom they expect to return at any moment and my, how they love him and how they love one another. That's the church we want to be, isn't it? Hello? There was a non-Christian Greek writer named Zeluxian in the second century. He says this, quote, It's remarkable to see how those of this religion, Christianity, help one another. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they're all family, that they are brothers and sisters. That's a non-Christian comment about a Christian church. The world looks at the church today and what do they see? Well, we're speaking generally. That's the trouble. Get them to look at a specific church. Because if you just look generally, then the world can be rightly judgmental, disappointed and critical. The Royal Commission on Child Sexual Abuse, we didn't do well. The Hillsong, a mega church exposed, not doing well. Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll, not doing well. Ravi Zacharias, Jimmy Swaggart, Ted, and the list goes on. So the world looks and sees this soap opera of activities, and what Jesus says is, brothers and sisters, love one another. Hold one another accountable. Your attitude to my word should be reflected in your life and in your attitude to one another. And we need to speak the truth. You can bounce Christians because they will be committed to doing that which is right. It's a long time ago, so I'm doing this from memory. I read a story about the animals in the jungle had gathered together. The lion met up with the tiger and they were drinking at the pool and the other animals were gathered around and holding back a bit, just watching and listening to the conversation. The tiger says to the lion, why do you roar like a fool to which the lion says that's not foolish they call me the king of the beast because I advertise a rabbit one of the animals was there listening to them um, he ran home and he started practicing walking like a lion he came to his fur up his neck so that he had a mane and the next day around lunchtime he went into the position himself in the jungle somewhere and he was going to give out a mighty roar and he gave out this almighty squeak and the fox came to investigate saw the rabbit and had lunch in the woods so the morale of this story is when you advertise be sure you've got the goods when you say you're a christian be obedient to god's word walk with jesus and reflect him in your life and love one another or just stop calling yourself a christian My attitude towards God, my actions in living, my affections to believers, John is saying to us. I am in God's kingdom if I obey God. I am in God's kingdom if my lifestyle is consistent. Not perfect, but orientated. And I am in God's kingdom if I love my brothers and sisters.
I can say I'm in God's kingdom, but if I don't obey God's commands, if I don't behave like Jesus wants me to, and if I don't love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, then I am not in God's kingdom. Questions are available at the end of this. Which one of these three areas for you do you think you need to work on the most? Most of us are going to have to work on all three, but which one the most? How's your obedience? That one? How about your consistent lifestyle? That one? Attitudes to one another? Love towards one another? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for one another. Lord, we don't stand um, before you as glorified or perfected yet, but we do stand before you sincerely, that we do want to please you, and we ask you to help us, that you would place those desires, that motivation in our hearts. And Lord, help us to grow into it, to be responsive to your prompts and to your word. Help us to act and respond, whether it's to speak or even to be silent, just like Jesus did and as he would want us to do. And Heavenly Father, I do ask, forgive us for when we hurt and offend one another. Help us to put our relationships right, our fellowship right, and our attitudes right. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word. Help us not to walk away from it, but rather to walk with it and to reflect upon it. And we ask that you might fulfill your purposes in each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of hope fill each of you with joy and peace as you trust in him. And may you overflow with hope by his Holy Spirit at work in you, in Jesus. And everybody said? Bless you, everybody. Please be seated.